us of who God is, His holiness, His righteousness. What a great God that we serve. So tonight, we're going to continue in our series, uh, gauging others um, with the message and story of Jesus, and we're going to do so by looking at those who consider themselves Buddhists. So we're going to um, kind of walk through. I will say that this will not be exhaustive. You may be exhausted afterwards uh, just because of me, but it's not exhaustive. There's many more hours to be spent in understanding. Um, I'm going to give you, as we'll get into it, you'll see kind of the, uh, the two most common, um, I think we'll understand it this way, the denominations of, of, of Buddhism, if, if we're determined that, that way. Um, but I think that we'll, we'll be able to see it. Why study uh, Buddhism? Why study those? Well, it's interesting to see, just as we saw in Scientology, there are those who are in the public eye who are, are Buddhists, just as well as those who are Scientologists. So uh, names like Tina Turner, Richard Gere, which we'll hear from tonight, uh, Larry Hagman, got shot, J.R., uh, Harrison Ford. So these are those who have said at some point in time, and some still do, that they practice um, some form of Buddhism. Well, the origins, I was going to start with Hinduism because that really is the origins, but uh, we're, we're going to cover that a little bit later. Uh, so I started with this point of Buddhism when it broke from Hinduism. Indeed, it had its roots uh, 2,500 years ago. So this is not a recent uh, philosophy, but 2,500 years ago, Hinduism reigned in India. And so that was the, the, the Indo-Aryan developed a Brahmanism and the caste system that we hear about, uh, the caste system was to maintain the purity of their race, and the Brahmanism morphed into and became Hinduism, and they continued the caste system as part of the, the culture there, and it still figures into their culture some. Um, we, had a, um, we were on a um, cruise with my in-laws in Alaska um, back in August and talked to a guy from India, worked there, uh, who was over all of the watches. I like watches, so we, I didn't buy one. But I went there to talk to him and spent a lot of time in the shop because they were interesting. And he was um, from India. He, however, was not uh, uh, a Hindu. He was Muslim. And so, he, he, so my brother-in-law, who has been to India a couple of times with the Water of Life mission, um, he asked him, so when I ask... Hindus about the caste system, they don't want to talk to me about it. Um, is it? And the guy goes, oh yeah, live and well. <laughs> he goes, so Steve said, so why did you, why, why are you so, you know, ready to say that? He said, well, because I'm a Muslim. And so I feel the effects of it, the, the caste system, even though it's not as prevalent, there is still this stigma. So it, that came, well, um, the Rig Veda, and we'll talk about this a little later, um, it really had a certain caste, and just kind of overview. There was the priestly scholar class, there was the warrior class, the agricultural and merchant class, and the, then the peasants and servants. And no, I'm not going to pronounce all of the, the different caste systems. Um, you who know them maybe um, can help me with pronunciation later. But over time, there are even more subdivisions within, but the top and bottom of the caste remained the same. And their uh, words of wisdom maintained that, their sacred writings. Well, over time, there was much poverty and despair uh, that um, because of this way of life, um, 
in India, and the, in particular because of uh, Hinduism. Um, and the reincarnation of samsara seemed like a never-ending wheel for those who were caught up into it. Uh, the, the reincarnation, the idea that you came back from something else, and um, uh, the whole karma, we'll discuss that maybe a later date, either next week or the following week, Lord willing. Um, but it was like you couldn't escape from it. Uh, you're all, if you were in a lower caste, it, it seemed like you never got out of that caste, or it didn't seem that way, even though um, they took reincarnation on it as face value. And so they never got to the, per, the place of real nirvana. Uh, they never got to the place where our world we would be freed from pain and our world soul, or nirvana would be part of that world soul. And over time, there were many Indian re- reformers to this because of the injustices of the caste system. Um, but somewhere between 490 and 500 BC, a son was born to a minor raja or king, and his name was, was Siddhartha Gautama, uh, as we know now, Gautama Buddha. Uh, he, he became the founder of, the, of Buddhism as we know of it today. Uh, he was the son of a man who had uh, means, so he's an upper caste, but he saw the inconsistencies of life and the suffering of those. Suffering is a word that will figure greatly into Buddhism. He saw the suffering of those, um, of the people around him. And so uh, he went, he abandoned his wife and his son, and he wandered the, the land, basically, where he lived. Uh, he felt that he could no longer live as a son of a wealthy ruler. He forsook that, as well as his family. And it became a wandering ascetic, and praying and fasting over time. And after seven years of wandering and searching and meditating, he happened upon the true path and the great enlightenment under the bow tree or the bodhi tree. Uh, it goes both ways and different, um, different uh, types of Buddhism. And he discovered this, um, and um, basically, i just kind of give you uh, the... the the geography. He was in a place what we think of as Nepal. So uh, under that tree, he discovered four noble truths, okay? Four noble truths that would lead to the Eightfold Path in a moment. First noble truth was the truth of suffering, that suffering was universal. All is suffering, okay? So that's encouraging. All of life is suffering. He, he, he discovered that. We're bound in a cycle, he said, of suffering, but he, his second noble truth was the understanding of the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering, he said, was, a, was desires or cravings or attachment to things. Our attachment to these desires or things caused our suffering. Whether it be attachment to family or whatever, or wealth or position or thing, whatever it is, it caused, is the root cause of our suffering. Now, um, but he also, the third noble truth he wanted us to tell people was the truth of the cessation of suffering, that it is attainable, that you could cease from the suffering, and suffering is destroyed when nirvana is achieved. Um, so there, there was a way out. And so how was nirvana to be achieved? Well, that was the fourth noble truth, is the truth of the way for those to remove suffering from themselves. And basically, that was by detachment from the things that caused suffering. So you wonder why there are monks that go away and they spend time meditating. They're being detached. I mean, this is, 
is not because they, they're antisocial. They're detaching themselves from the things that cause suffering, whether it be life, family, wealth, any of those things. So with that, the way came the, the eightfold path. And this is really the, the way broken down of this last one here. So we have, um, well, they're all on the, on the page there. Uh, we have right belief, right resolve. So we had to believe the right thing about suffering of, of the Four Noble Truths, the right resolve to do it, the right word, the right act, the right life, the right effort, right thinking, and right meditation. And we're not going to go too far into this, but all these things were the eightfold path to remove yourself from the suffering. And so over time, you, if you practice Buddhism, if you practice this, you would work through these things by meditation um, so that you might remove yourself, be detached from suffering. And you can see here that this is very much man-centered. We never said anything about God. There was no God needed. So understand that in Buddhism, there is no God that is needed. Some will be a bit pantheistic, but there is necessarily no God needed in Buddhism. Um, and, and this is very common in Eastern religions because Buddhism spread out China, uh, uh, Japan. So it spread past this. So the common link here in Eastern religions or philosophies are that there is no personal God. There is no addressing a God as Father. Even if you believed in God or gods, he would not, it would not be personal. Even if there was a God, he is unknowable. We, we, we just can't know about him. And so really a feeling of hopelessness, in a sense. And you could see if you were decided that there is no God or God cannot be known, so how would you order your life so that you would overcome suffering? Well, you might do it if you were so inclined, like Buddha did, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path of Thinking, of Meditating, of ridding of yourself of anything that you desired. So here it was. Um, kind of give you an idea. So first to speak of, of gods. Um, I've got just a one-minute apologist of... Um, there we go. Oh, I should plug it in. Ah, my bad, it was humming. Just the intro. Questions. You'll hear people describe Buddhists sometimes as atheists or theists. Is this because of their view of God as pantheistic, that the whole world is God and therefore beyond the world there's no God? Does that make sense what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, there are different uh, uh, kinds of Buddhists. A Zen Buddhist could be classed as pantheists because they believe that there's this life force in everything, like in Star Wars, you know, may the force be with you. He admitted that he was uh, introducing Zen Buddhism into the Star Wars series. But most Buddhists are agnostic or atheists. They don't believe in a god or they doubt there is a god. It's just a, uh, a world uh, view without god uh, that tells you how to respond to evil. Instead of trying to fulfill all your desires, you need to extinguish all your desires until you desire nothing, and that's nirvana. So they're atheists or agnostic, with the exception of uh, Zen Buddhists who tend to be pantheistic. Succinctly, we'll sum up exactly what's going on there. So next, I want to kind of break down first the, the first 
may we say, denomination of uh, Buddhism, and then we'll spend the rest of our time on Zen Buddhism, because that's what's come to America mostly. Mostly this is what we see. We don't see, we see a few people in the, the orange robes. This would be this first part, the Mahayana or Hinayana Buddhism. We think of Tibet. We think of the Dalai Lama. Um, and this was very much also exported to China and Japan. Um, and this is very prevalent, but is not so much in the U.S. So you may have someone, maybe you have a foreign exchange student that you know, or someone you're studying with at a college, university, and they may come from their country, and as they would come, they might be part of this. More likely, they would be this first one rather than Zen, uh, Zen Buddhist, because Zen has a little bit of Western flair to it, um, but more, I would say, historic or, dare we say, traditional Buddhism would be this first one. And I'm not going to give uh, too much. If you have someone that you're friends with that, that is that, I can give you more information on this, where to read. Um, but I, I wanted to spend more time with uh, Zen Buddhism because um, it's more, more where we are in, in the U.S. Uh, it is the, indeed the second oldest is derived from the Japanese branch, branch of meditation school of the Buddhist philosophy. So um, they say uh, there's over 8 million followers today, and it's very much focused on the mind. So your thoughts of how you think about things are very important here. And so there's a strong focus on the practice of meditation. And not all Buddhists um, spend hours and hours meditating. Right? Some do, some don't. But Zen, they, they emphasize that in, in some ways. Um, um, it, it, dare I say, in the U.S., it's almost... The, the meditation is a fad. Um, in a sense, I, I meditate. Well, I think I'll get an experience of that in a minute in another video. The Zen ideal is to achieve a nirvanic state or saintly condition on earth now, which differs from the first branch of Buddhism that's... You go on after death into that. You never quite achieve the total nirvana. But Zen Buddhists, the ideal is that you can achieve it here now. You can, you can meet that state by meditation, by working through this. Um, you can achieve that. Uh, it is said that Zen is a paradox within a paradox, a mystical doctrine which laughs at all doctrines and dogmas and becomes doctrine and dogma in doing uh, Richard Matheson said this in Faith, Cults, and Sect. So it laughs, and no, there is no such, don't follow those dogmas. But in every philosophy, you set up men, humans tend to set up their own dogmas, no matter if you rail on other people's dogmas. Um, was that your dogma ate my catma? No, that wasn't it. Um, that wasn't it. So reality is not objective correlative truth. We'll see this. So that's the thing that you need to see, understand about this, that reality there is no such thing as objective reality. And uh, I'm going to play you a video here in a second. Uh, it is only reality if one chooses to participate in the manifestation of what one would think of as reality. So I'm going to play you. There's one place I'm going to try to mute. Um, uh, you may even not notice it. This is the word that I think we should mute. I'm going to try to do so. This is not intended as comedy, even though one of the people is now a uh, does comedy every night on TV, but this is not. This is a a, um, a film festival. You'll see this the beginning, and um, this is 
yeah, th- this is true interview here with Richard Gere. There we go. So Stephen Colbert is going to be interviewing Richard Gere here. You were you raised Methodist? Yeah. Notice the background. What brought you to, I know it's probably a big question, but what drew you to Buddhism away from Christianity? Or did you not be drawn away from Christianity, or did you add Buddhism? I, my, my father was very involved. In fact, my uncle was a Methodist minister. My father was almost a Methodist minister. He was a lay pastor. And um, incredibly compassionate man. He was very involved in the community, would do anything for anybody. He was, uh, he sold insurance. And for him, it wasn't a business. He was really serving his neighbors. And I could remember, there'd be a call in the middle of the night, and it would be someone who had a fire or an accident or whatever, and my dad was out. Middle of the night, gone. He'd be there. And it wasn't, again, a question of, well, you know, did you... Did you pay your premiums for the month? It was, it was no, it was a neighbor in need. And it was a small enough town that almost everybody knew each other. And especially my father knew, knew everybody and was intimate with, with their problems. You know, and, um, on that level, an insurance agent is like, is like a banker and a doctor and a shrink and, and, and an insurance agent at the same time. So I had that, that feeling that Christian, good Christian feeling of compassion and a and, uh, certain sense of grace that came along with that, which is extraordinary. Interesting but what he points out here. the ability to kind of, the wisdom aspect of really looking into the nature of the mind itself and looking to the nature of suffering in a very different way, uh, a more scientific approach to this. And Buddhism is essentially a science, the science of, of mind and it has to be fearless you have to really look i don't know anything about buddhism or very little about buddhism but carl sagan said um uh buddha buddhism's god is so great that he need not actually exist does that mean there's no yeah there's no creator in buddhism things just are there's no beginning there's no beginning and no end it's it's it doesn't make any sense it's it's I'm sorry, but it's ridiculous. So it's this, it's this sense of, of um, the mind itself is so vast, there's no need for a creator. We create it momentarily ourselves. Before you left college to go be uh, an actor, yeah. you studied philosophy at, at UMass Amherst. Did you have a favorite philosopher? Bishop Barclay. Bishop Barclay? Bishop Barclay. What's his, his, what's his thing was head? subjective idealism. <laughs> Subjective idealism? Yeah. What does that mean? I think what you think. Okay, sorry. I think I... It, it's, it, in Tibetan, it would, be, it would correspond to the mind-only school. And it's so essentially... The, mind, where, the what? Mind-only, that everything exists only in the mind. Forget Buddhism. This is just science we're talking about and how the brain works and how we don't... We do not have an experience of the world. We have an experience of our previous experiences. And we're just going around and we're going around in a map of that we've already created. This is all a virtual world. The whole thing is virtual based on our own brains. Is this the Matrix? Are you Neo? It is totally a matrix. I know Kung Fu. My son and I talk about this all the time. 
This is totally a virtual matrix experience we're having. Well, is there an objective reality, Richard Gere? No, there isn't. There's no objective reality? There is none. Even one we can't see? There's just something there? there. But I am, you are, he, she, or it is. We're actually right here. There's nothing in the mind that has a mechanism to reach out. All the mind can do is see itself. I'm not trying to blame her point, but I think the more, he talks, <laughs> the more he talks, I think it'll give our you an idea of what you know. the surface of our minds and how we make value judgments are lying to us constantly. What do you mean our eyes are lying to us? We, we, we don't have a, a fresh moment of just seeing something. It, it, the way a child sees its hand, like a baby is enthralled. Maybe with its own I guess you could use that. There was a, there exactly was a, like there was a wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to be more profound than that. No, there was something you've probably heard of, the Mind and Life Institute. And this was started by the Dalai Lama 30 years ago. Top scientists uh, in all fields. Um, and uh, there is a guy named Richie Davidson who's been working, mapping the mind. And, and a couple of years ago, they were able to, to map the, the initial experience of the world, the event of something in the world, and using sight. I mean the first time you see something you'd never experienced before? Never experienced before, but it doesn't matter because what, what happens is the whole thing is clouded. Once you have an experience, the brain sets up a catalog, an, an area to take in that type of information. What, what you could see in this mapping was there is a moment where there's initial engagement with out there. We'll just call it out there. Then everything recedes back into the brain things light up inside the brain, and then it projects back out. The only part of that we're conscious of is the projecting out. So we're, we're actually seeing the projection of the reconstruction? We're only seeing our own mind. How do you stop doing that, Richard Gere? You, you learn to meditate, basically. Do you meditate <laughs> you do. every day? Yeah, every day. But that's, it's, it's a way to... How often, how often do you meditate every day? Uh, the really morning, okay. always in the morning. Really? And, I, I don't know, minimum of 45 minutes, maybe a couple hours of every time. At age 65, honestly, how much of that is you just falling asleep? 95 percent, 95 percent. Okay. So, um, so um, before, we, before we go to the tenets of Zen Buddhism, you you see a mind um, desperately struggling to understand a concept of of reality, or and so we say it's subjective because we really don't want to envision or think of a god, a personal god, with whom we have to interact and with whom we have to answer, and so. If you sit there and listen to that, if you have no, no, um, no relationship with God, you might say, well, he's a man of science. Well, talking about the mind doesn't make a man of science. But to me, there's a, there's a good bit of, of pity that working and struggling and meditating 
um, to achieve something, but really it's nothing because it's only inside my mind. So, tenets of Zen Buddhism. Um, this will help you a little bit as far as just to kind of wrap this up, and then I'll, I'll uh, kind of sum up everything. Revelation. Uh, Zen is incommunicable. <clears throat> Dr. Suzuki said, when we think we know something, there is something that we don't know. Um, He said also, if I am asked, um, well, let's go to the next one because it talks about this. There's there's no set doctrine, so no sacred books, no symbolic formulas. And then Dr. Suzuki said, if I'm asked then what Zen teaches, I would answer, Zen teaches nothing. Whatever teachings there are in Zen, they come out of one's own mind. We teach ourselves. Um, Zen merely points the way. Okay? So, Revelation, there's, there's no revealed books. There's no authority here. Um, so, the nature of God. Well, Zen consciousness is a mind made one with life, a oneness with all humanity. Who having this needs rules of morality, Christmas Humphrey said in Zen Buddhism. So this, this, uh, the idea of um, the nature of God, we don't need God. We don't need objective rules of morality because we can make them, we can come, they come from within us. Which actually, it's, it's a fascinating question when you get to why, why be good? Really? Why, why do something good? Why, why be altruistic? He talked, Richard Gere talks about his father. Why do that? Why be good to someone? There's no worth to it. If it's all about me and, and how I perceive the world and Zen and my meditation, then maybe by being mean to someone or killing someone, I'm better able to perform Zen. Oh, I can better get to that point of nirvana because it is all in my mind, and really subjectively, I really didn't kill them. They just, I just thought I did. No objective, no absolute moral overpannings of a, of a God who has given life, creator God, and who gives objective, in fact, absolute morals, a moral law for which we are to live. So how does one um, be saved in their sense? Well, it it is a self-salvation. They would not technically call anything of this nature a a salvation. But it's the self. Um, The responsibility of our own actions fall upon us. We, of our own free will, do a thing. We are responsible for the enslavement of our freedom. We forge our own chains, they say. Only we can break them. It is our responsibility to free us by our actions, to free our will. Again, all based on the mind. So what about sin and evil? Hinduism juxtaposes light and darkness, um, but Zen negates a personal God. So in Hinduism, you, you had the contrast of light, of, and um, we'll spend some time on the, on the many gods, but you had good and evil, but in Zen, there's no personal God. It really is a subtle form of atheism, although some believe in this force, we might call it. Instead, it's the oneness. So sin and evil really isn't, um, it's part of the same thing. 
take the, the down the rabbit hole of Star Wars. Uh, it's the same thing. It's just one side of the same power, they would say. And so what a, to me, hopeless, in the sense, it's, it's hopelessness, but it's great effort and work to, to try to achieve something in the mind, but in the end, there's nothing. Negates a personal God. Um, it denies the reality of sin, since there is no absolute standard, as I mentioned before. It rejects the need for personal redemption. There is no need for Jesus. Uh, one of our writers, Martin Lawrence, uh, Martin, Walter Martin said, um, blind guides leading the blind. Um, that really, uh, Walter Martin recommended this book, if you want to read more, um, Zen Existentialism. This is by uh, Litsing Chang, is a Christian convert from Zen Buddhism. Really is having been in and, and, and part of this philosophy, we'd say, not a religion, a philosophy, um, come experience the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, now the personal God, Jesus, and so now writes on this. And I think it would be, if you have someone who is a Zen Buddhist, probably a great way to, to really educate yourself on this. And so we have the blind leading the blind. And I think I want to sum up, uh, before I go to my to my comments with, um, hopefully I can get this in, an interview with Ravi, uh, Zacharias, and um, uh, John Enkelberg. I want you to compare a moment Buddhism and Christianity. It's interesting that the Pope and the Dalai Lama were comparing thoughts here because you have two worldviews that are in collision. And the reason I bring this up about Buddhism is it's one of the most popular questions on our website, not only here, but in Europe. And so people are kind of fascinated with that. Some of the movie stars in, in Hollywood have gone to Buddhism. Yeah. And I'm saying, let's talk about comparing worldviews at this point. You're absolutely right. As I travel, even one-on-one or on the, in a mail or whatever, there's this real delight in, you know, what about Buddhism? What about Buddhism? What people actually forget that Buddhism has one of the most dangerous seductions possible. It can make you believe that you can be good without God. Because there's no God in Buddhism. There's no teaching about God in Buddhism. And what I had was a conversation once with a very renowned monk in Thailand. She was the first woman monk ordained, PhD McMaster University in, from Canada, and had come back to Thailand, went to Sri Lanka to be ordained, and I contacted her for the privilege of talking to her. We had a fascinating conversation. So at one point I said to her, who do you think is the quintessential expression of your faith? She said, the Dalai Lama. I said, and the goal of your faith is to cease desiring, right? You don't want to will anymore. Don't want. She said, that is right. I said, can you tell me why the Dalai Lama wills for the liberation of Tibet? When the best expression of your faith violates the ultimate precept towards which you are moving, how do you respond to that? She was very quiet. She said, may I say he wills to do so. She, you could tell she was getting upset at this point. So I backed off. I said, I have one more question for you, ma'am. And I said, that is this. You believe that every birth is a rebirth in your faith? She said, yes. 
I said, but if you start from now and move backwards, okay, you start from now and move backwards, you've had a finite number of births. Is that correct? She said, I would say so. I said, since you believe every birth is a rebirth and every birth is a payment for the previous birth and you have a finite number of births, that must mean you had a first birth. Is that correct? And she paused and said, yes, I would have to say so. I said, what were you paying for in your first birth? She was visibly shaken by the question. She said, we choose not to ask such questions. Ironically, she had left her family just like Buddha had. She'd left her children and her husband and had renounced all of that. I asked her if she longed to see her kids and I could see the tears welling up and the lips quivering. She said, I pick them up every day and I take them to school and I pick them up from school. And so she had a car as a Buddhist monk and as a Buddhist female monk, she couldn't have a man driving along. So she was always alone and picked up the children. She could see the breaking point out there. One of my Hindu friends once said to me who came to know Christ, he said, you know, Ravi, I woke up one morning and I was thinking of our conversation. And then I thought to myself, Even my bank manager tells me how much I owe and how long I have to pay it back. He said, in my karmic cycle, I have no idea how much I owe and how long I have to pay it back. He said, it's a heartless system. And he ultimately gave his life to Christ. So those of you who live by these ethical views, I commend you for wanting to lead a good life. It tells me a lot about who you are. You don't want to bring hurt. You don't want to bring pain. But let me just remind you, goodness doesn't come from within you. The biggest problem in the world is not outside of you, it's inside of you. And the transformed human heart and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his presence with you gives you the right kind of hungers and lets you know that it is appointed for you once to die and after that you meet your creator. If you look at the countries in this world that had ethical systems for religion, you will find them to be the most unethical today because ethics alone doesn't have within itself the imperative. It only has the draw that this is the way you should be. God gives you the strength in the Christian faith to do what is right. So the ultimate goal of Buddhists is to free one's will, to release oneself from the world around him, to be above the pain, above the suffering, above the disease that afflicts others. But that really is, uh, as Martin writes, love for self first, last, and always. Historically, Buddhism has produced nothing but indescribable conditions under which its subjects live. Disease, hunger, moral, spiritual decay. The concern is only for one's self. And I, and I notice that in the... I, the location is missing. Richard Gere spoke of the mind of the meditation. And the, where he needed to be speaking of and worried about was the heart. And Buddhists need Jesus. They need that. And I think Ravi Zacharias so beautifully summed up. It's an unjust system that causes us to be good and never gives any hope of the eternal life. A cosmic, karmic system that gives no hope. And Jesus gives hope. You know, as we think about this, we must understand and must let people know that salvation is found in Jesus and not in our, ourselves. Jesus releases us not only from the world we live in, but from the sin that enslaves us, and that is the problem, our sin. 
And it's interesting also, when the encounter of Jesus comes, we don't withdraw from the world. The one who has a personal relationship with Jesus goes into the world with hope and help for those who suffer. Instead of the mind ridding ourselves of all things that we desire, Jesus changes our desires and sends us back to minister to those who are in need. And there, in a very simple phrase, is the difference uh, between Buddhism and the personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Reminded often as I looked at this that the love of Christ compels us to go. The love of Christ first was illustrated as he came for us and we are to go. I hope uh, God will put in your path uh, someone who practices Buddhism, uh, who is a Buddhist, and you will have the opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. Unfortunately, I have no, chance, no time for questions, but if you have questions, email me. I'll try to respond or um, send you information on it this week. In fact, it is time to pray and time to go. Let's bow. Gracious God, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Thank you for who you are. Lord, we sometimes pass over the fact that we have the very answer in the form of Jesus Christ for the need of the world, the need of a Savior. Lord, and all the suffering that is in the world, help us to be your conduit of grace and mercy. That we show forth your love. And, oh God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to interact with those who may indeed want to be good and want to, to do good things for people, but are trying in their own power and their own, own strength and struggle. May we show them the love of Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have paid the price for us. And you free us from our chains of sin. May we glorify you and give you great praise. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.